not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I have delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup. And after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may no longer be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. And so... On Paul's grocery list of issues, which is really what the letter of Corinthians is, he addresses this one, which was a a selfish problem surrounding uh, the Lord's Supper. He particularly ends by saying this, though. If you judge yourself appropriately, that is, if you understand what's really going on here, you're not going to be judged. right? You won't be condemned. You'll actually be, he says, uh, disciplined. It's a very big difference between condemnation and being disciplined by the Lord. A loving father disciplines, a wrathful judge condemns to death. And there's a reality of being adopted into God's family and being given birthright privileges to eat at his table. And then from his table, there might be discipline. God has oftentimes brought his children through various and serious trials But that is only for your strength, only for your good, only for your discipline to be formed into the image of Jesus Christ. There is a way, though, to come to a table like this and actually do it wrong. It can be done inappropriately. And that's his whole warning to them. See, it's it's like this as far as how the church really functions in the world, why the Lord Jesus has made the church the way it is. See, when you perhaps 
might be newer to this particular church. And I would be able to tell if I caught you in the hallway sometime after the service in between the adult education class. Because we have this thing on a wall. It's right above um, the water fountains. It's a very loud metal bell. And if you're new here, that will scare you. Especially right around the time it's ring and you dip down to maybe refresh yourself with some of that uh, Harrison City tap water. And that bell is right above your head. And it's fun to watch. And I kind of know about when it's happening. I'm usually there talking to people. And you notice the ones who actually have been at New Life for years, right? So they have this... Um, been culturally conditioned, that they'll walk right by this incredibly loud bell that almost sounds like a train coming down the hallway, and they won't even blink. They'll be like, oh yeah, that's the bell, right? So there's a certain power to this, right? This cultural um, um, conditioning, right? Now the church, this really is what the church is in some ways. It is that part of the world that resists cultural conditioning, right? We have various bells in our culture that are very loud, right? And we hear them so often that they actually don't phase us anymore, right? We actually have uh, spoken of some of these in the weeks past, right? As Americans, we are individual. We pride our individualism and our pragmatism, what works is best, Individualism, what is best for me is best. If I am alone by myself and I make my own decisions apart from accountability of any others, that is supreme. That is elevated in our culture. Right? Postmodernism, we speak of, simply way of saying, all truth is self-referential. We love that one. These are the belts. They're, they're ridiculous. Outside of the history of other cultures and times, these things we hold so dear, they're annoying. We don't think they're annoying because we hear them all the time. We grew up hearing these bells our whole life. But they're ridiculous. That truth is self-referential. Truth is what it is to you. We pride these things. Now, if I could, for this morning, pick up my axe one more time. Go into the American cult center and take one more chop at this idol of ours. I intend to strike it more at the root. Because, yeah, we have in our American um, culture, this idea of individualism and pragmatism and postmodernism, but really what it is, is selfishness. Because what is individualism except withdrawing to yourself? And what is pragmatism except whatever works? What should the church be? Whatever works for me. And really what is postmodernism? Whatever is true for you. Whatever is true to myself. Really, like uh, Gideon in the Old Testament had to sneak out at night to chop down the Ashtar pool, the idol of his city. Well, I'm doing it on Sunday morning. I'm just going to say, hey, this is the root of it. We are a selfish people. See it for what it is. The whole point of the church, you see, the way Jesus made it in such a way It is so opposed to that one idol of selfishness. The church is an assembly. It's the exact opposite of self. Self is one, assembly is many. 
That's already a problem. That's, that's going to rub the wrong way. And the church itself is called the Kirk, which means the Lord's. Well, that doesn't feel good when you want to be selfish and something's called not yours. It's the Lord's. It's a church. So we find here, particularly, particularly with this fact, that we worship the Lord in the church, which is the Lord's, on Sunday, which is the Lord's day. And we baptize in the name of the Lord, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And yes, we come to a table which is called the Lord's Supper. He has come inside the church and put his name on everything. And that itself is the most countercultural thing of any culture. That it would be all to the glory of the Lord. That is, to be a genuine Christian, to, be, to actually come to Christ, what happens in your soul and your mind is that you start to look at the world differently. What you find is that everything you saw is the same thing, the trees and the bushes and the grass. But it, the world becomes mysteriously beautiful and sacramental in the fact that you now cannot see the trees or the bushes or the grass and not understand that that is the Lord's. That in some way that points to the glory of God, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The starry host above or the moral law within your heart, you can't look anywhere and start to realize that down at the micro level, if you look close enough, it says Yahweh over everything. And most explicitly in the church, most explicitly at this table, that it is the Lord's. And so we should be encouraged by this, that praise God, selfishness is not a uniquely American problem. Paul is writing to these Corinthians, and he says this, I do not commend you. When you come together, it's actually worse. When you gather together as a church, you do more harm than good. And there's divisions among them, and he says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions. We talk about the church being one and holy and Catholic and apostolic. Yes, it is, but there's divisions. And Paul goes on to say, well, I believe this in part. There must be some type of factions among you in order to show who is genuine among you and the genuine ones must be recognized. Right? There's really two ways people tend to understand that. We're not sure entirely, but Paul could really be just being sarcastic here, which always gives me encouragement that God can use sarcastic people. I always try to remind my wife of that, that it, it could be a sanctified thing. Um, but then again, you know, this is uh, the Apostle Paul, and so we do have lines um, but he could be sarcastic because um, what he's really saying is, yes, of course, yes, there's divisions because some of you selfishly are elevating yourselves among others. And of course, we know you're all better. And so he's kind of sarcastically rebuking them. Well, of course, you have divisions among you because some of you are arrogant. You know, he could be saying that. Or, or he could be saying particularly, yes, there, of course, there's going to be divisions among you because what we said earlier, uh, there's an invisible church. That is, the visible multitude of what we call the church is not actually the church the invisible church that will be there at glory around the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus. Some are not true, and some are. But both tuck the shirt in on a Sunday, you see. And so what he's saying is, yes, there, there's going to be divisions in the church by the nature of the church being a spiritual reality of invisible, true regeneration. But his rebuke comes strong to them when you come together, 
Uh, it is not the Lord's Supper. Is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? That reorients everything. Saying, when you come together, is it not literally called the Lord's Supper? The name of God has been placed upon this. Two opposite lines can never meet. That you could be in the Lord's Supper with the Lord's Church on the Lord's Day and then do it in a selfish manner. A self-seeking, self-oriented, self-gratifying disposition. This is an impossibility, Paul is saying. By the very nature of what you claim to be doing, his name is over everything and you come in with yourselves. Do you see the countercultural reality of the church? There is a holiness to the church and that confrontation cannot go away. So therefore, let's embrace the confrontation. We are seeking to meet with the one true holy and living God. It will be different. It must be. And so the confrontation he pushes upon them. And he said, it is the Lord's. The word there is kirikon depnon. Kirikon. Doesn't it sound like the word kirk? It is the kirk's table. It is the Lord's table. It is the church's table, which the church is the Lord's. It's all his For each one, this selfishness is, comes out in verse 21 where he says, For in eating, each one of you, oh, individualism, selfishness, each one of you goes ahead of the other, having his own personal little happy meal. Right? There's a, the, the problem is selfishness. The problem is a unbridled individualism. A self-seeking, going on ahead of the other. Particularly could be translated, this idea of going on ahead of the other is taking his own. Another scholar translates the Greek that way. Each one is taking his own, taking what is his. You're coming to the table that is the Lord's with raw, unbridled, sinful selfishness. This is the confrontation, the countercultural reality of the church. See, to understand what's going on here is the early church were household churches. Right? They didn't meet in large rooms, of course, like this. And so, Roman culture, of course, was so much different than ours. They were structured, they were hierarchical, they were patriarchal, they were honor-based. We pretty much have no, we don't even know what, what shame is, let alone honor. So there's a huge difference between our culture and Rome. But the reality is, they're both incredibly selfish. Because in the Roman culture, the houses, particularly a, a, a wealthy patron, would have a larger house and would host the worship service at their home. And so they would have a larger, if it is a wealthy person, actually hold a church service, um, triclinium is their word for dining room, essentially. It was a table surrounded by couches in which, at a wealthy person's house, you would be invited to sit in an honorary place, you would sit at the table and recline on a couch. The way meals were structured in such a way that the person who had closer friends at the party would sit next to them in the meal. They would sit in the triclinium, that room particularly designated for dining, fine dining. The food would be better there. The wine would be richer. 
You'd get more portions and better meat. And anyone else who's part of this large party, let's say it's a wedding in ancient Rome, well, there would be an overflow, an atrium, in which those who are kind of friends of um, the host, but maybe not as close friends, or just kind of lucky to be invited to some type of banquet, they would get put into the atrium, the overflow, the hall. That was common Roman custom for any good social gathering. And Paul, you see the culture, the ringing of the bells, the assumptions of the absurdity of our own selfish culture, stops them in the tracks and says, absolutely not. You see, we don't do it that way in the church. This is the Lord's church. This is the Lord's table. Don't care what Roman culture says. Don't care what your customs are. That individualism, that pecking order of pride and honor, none of it. Not one bit. This is different. So he rebukes them all and he separates. And this is the need to separate. He separates in their minds the difference between what is the home and what is the church. And he pulls them apart. For the confusion, of course, is the early church met in homes. But the church is not a home. The church is its own institution brought about by the glory of Jesus Christ. That is unique. That is distinct. You see... The nature of it all is that our souls are naturally sunk, sunk in on ourselves. See, like we, we naturally stand tall. We're humans. We stand up and we put our shoulders back and we walk. But the nature of our fallenness, our sinfulness, is that we naturally are actually, if you were to see a spiritual version of us, a spiritual man of us, we are like this. We are hunched. We are always looking upon ourselves. We are always selfish and self-oriented in an in neurotic, narcissistic way that is so natural to us, we don't even know how unnatural it is to our posture. When I was 18 or 19, I mean young, I sneezed once and couldn't stand up. I had to go to the chiropractor. I was lifting a lot and, and running a lot for basketball and things, and my muscles are very tight, which shouldn't really happen before you even hit 20. But I literally sneezed once, and I walked into the chiropractor like this. There had to be an adjustment. The purpose of the church, it is cultural chiropractic institution. It is intended to flip us up, straighten our back, and to actually look outward and upward and get ourselves off ourselves. The whole way it is made is for that purpose. It's impossible to be done alone. See, American spirituality is very individualistic. People always say, I worship Jesus Christ. I can worship him by myself. I can do church with my family by myself. In the time, month, uh, years ago in COVID, churches were entertaining the idea of doing communion virtually. That's exactly the opposite of the very point Paul is making here. That communion, by its very nature, cannot be done alone. It cannot be done by itself. It is impossible that even though the church gathered in houses, the church is not a home. The church is the household of God. And he rebukes their selfishness and their separation by saying this very clearly. Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? And you despise the church of God and humiliate those who are poor. 
who don't have anything. Do you see the division? You're hungry? Go home and eat. Like, you're using the church as your home. He's making a clear distinction between, do you not have a home to eat in? Leave the church out of it. This separation, this distinction is what makes the church a vital institution into the culture. That it speaks against the culture, even against our own homes, and reforms us individually. That there is a reality in which there is something that is not yours, that is not the home. He says even going further in verse 34, he says, If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Did you ever notice that when we have communion, it just happens to not be very much bread? See, if, you, if you're hungry, have an Angus steak at home. If you are doing something different, you come to this table. And so now with that set, with the table in some way set before we approach... I hope you don't mind if I just need to preach the gospel now. I'm going to really preach the beautiful gospel of what's going on here. Okay. The previous chapter, in 1 Corinthians 10.16, Paul explains why this is such a problem. He explains exactly what this means. He says... The cup of blessing with which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word for participation is koinonia. It's fellowship, essentially a communal connection to, and here it is, the real, literal body of Jesus Christ. That in taking this meal, you are, by that very act, Connecting yourself to Jesus Christ. In the mind of God, covenantally. It's called a sacrament. Sacrament is the idea of mystery. That is, it is a mysterious connection. It is a covenantal participation. That is, in the real death of Jesus Christ and the real life of Jesus Christ, all selfishness is surrendered to this table because it is the actual participation of dying to yourself in Christ. Of bleeding out your life before the Lord and offering yourself in the same fashion, though not with the same righteous power of Jesus Christ. That he offered himself once on that cross as a perfect propitiatory sacrifice that exhausted and consumed all the curses and death and wickedness and darkness of this world. And that if you are part of that, you drink. If you are part of that, you eat. And you are, therefore, now, in God's very mind, the mind that created all things, dead. Truly dead to yourself. You have bled out. You have died in his death. And therefore, now, this meal is your life. You are alive in his life. It's not just a remembering. It's not just a symbol. 
It's a symbol that's connected to the reality of God's mind concerning you. That you are now alive. Therefore, there's no way to approach this table as if it were just a table. The Corinthians treat it as if it is just a meal. They treat it as if it is just something around their home in which they are to eat. This is the closest reality of some type of transportation in time in which the eternal Son of God and the eternal gospel, as he has chosen you before the foundations of the world even, has an ability to unite all things to his Son. And that extends to you in this moment by this table in the mind of God, just as if Jesus Christ was crucified before you this morning. So the words is what he says of this institution, an institution given to the institution of the church is, for I received from the Lord what I have delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, that is, Eucharist, he broke it, and he said, this is my body for you. Not as a dramatic demonstration, but a real offering of his body to you today. The cure to selfishness, to this problem we have, is not focusing in on all of our problems, because that just makes more selfishness. The solution is to not be hunched, to not be down, but to look up and realize that you give yourself to the one who is given, already given himself to you. And that is what this is. He has been delivered. Delivered over. Delivered over for you. Paul says, it is the tradition I have that I delivered to you. But see, this delivering goes the whole way. That This man was never able to be touched. He was so... Dejected and cursed for you that the father delivered over his son. Judas delivered over Jesus to the Jewish court. The Jewish court delivered over Jesus to Pilate. Pilate delivered Jesus over to the crowd. The crowd delivered Jesus to the cross. That is in Matthew 27, 6, it said he was scourged and he was delivered. The same word Paul uses for Jesus being delivered to you now is that he was delivered upon that cross for you. And before he went down that deep trail of deliverance into the curses of darkness and death, he had that last meal. And he says, I'm about ready to be handed over. And he breaks the bread and says, this is for you. It is all for you. At the end of the gospel, all his miracles, all his feedings, all his healings, what does it all mean? Is this who this Messiah is? Is he supposed to save the world through all the wonderful things he can do? No. It all was just for this meal. It was all just for the cross. That everything he ever did was nothing more than to offer his life as a substitution for you. That if there is any point in the Gospels, any point in anything that Jesus ever did, in which you don't interpret it as the breaking of that bread for you and leading to his death on the cross, it is misunderstood. Everything he did led to that, to that moment, to be given for you. It is a sign, it is a seal. This is my body, he says, which is given for you. A symbol. But not just a symbol, right? So the gospel is this. 
that in drinking this cup, you participate with that very blood that was delivered on that tree. That in eating this bread, you participate in that very body which was cursed on the cross. That in drinking, you die to yourself to live to Christ. In consuming this right now, you will consecrate yourself to Christ. The very act, the very act of devotion, the very act of absolute self-abandonment, absolute dejection of self. All selfishness comes to this table to die as Jesus died for you on the cross. That you are literally giving over your life by a covenant meal saying, so be it to me. So be it to me that I die. Let me die as Christ has died. Not for my sins. Not because I need to make atonement. I have no life I can offer. I am corrupted in sin. But my life has now been in Christ. And therefore now I drink this. I drink this and I eat this. So that I might die to myself. If I could just learn to die for myself. I would be happier. I would be a better husband. I would be a better pastor. I would be a better driver. If I could just die to myself. And that is hard. So here, this has been given to you. To die. Completely die to yourself. And give yourself over to Christ. So there is a way to do it the wrong way. And he says, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup in an unworthy way, he will be guilty of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This isn't just a meal. You come to this meal. It's a sign and a seal that is delivered. I'll explain this before we go to the table. If you've ever uh, been through high school, let's say, or college and received some type of diploma, what you have is a piece of paper that has been signed and sealed and delivered to you. The faculty signed it. The emblem of the school sealed it. That is, there's an image of the handwriting and it seals some authoritarian promise that you've actually done what? Completed the education that you actually, in some way, inside of you, are different than you were four years ago. That you've been educated, I guess. Now, if you were to find a diploma on the ground and then go home and hang it on your wall, you would have a sign, you would have a seal, but nothing's actually been delivered to you. You see? This is a picture. This is a sign. He says this bread is his body. And this cup is his blood. It is also sealed. That is, it is authenticated by the promises of the gospel which have been preached before you today. But how could it possibly be truly delivered to you? For it is, after all, just bread. Just wine. We are saved by grace through faith. And this is not our undoing, but is a gift of God. If you will behold Jesus Christ through faith, if you will wish yourself to be dead to yourself and alive in Christ, the real body and blood of Jesus Christ is delivered to you today. You might say, now where could I find it? 
Where could I give myself to him? Where can I lay hold of him? Eat this bread. Look to this cup. For he is here now in that way. Dear Father God, we ask, Lord, that we would have our hearts lowered before you. That we would come to this table understanding that we only look down for a moment to ourselves, to examine ourselves, that we might truly discern the Lord's body. That is, we are participating in the true risen Christ right now so that we might look up and see you, Lord. Forget about ourselves. Forget about this life that we have, that it really is only your life. For our life is in you. Lord, we thank you for covering us with this death. Let us remember your death. Let us remember your death as we come now, Lord, to take part in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand if you're able? We'll prepare.